This week on Myths and Legends, it's the story of the Holy Grail, where we'll learn all about the origin of this incredibly famous object from Arthurian legend, and you'll see that you, apparently, should be very picky about which dishes you bring to your next dinner party. The creature this week is the reason you shouldn't pet that sad, lonely puppy. I know, it's tough, but just trust me, don't do it. This is Myths and Legends, episode 120A, Only the Penitent Man Will Pass. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week's episode is brought to you by Wolverine, The Long Night. Marvel just released Wolverine, The Long Night, their first ever scripted podcast, for free. It starts when a fishing boat is found drifting off the coast of Alaska. Two special agents arrive to find out what killed the crew. Their first suspect, a mysterious drifter named Logan. Starring Richard Armitage as Wolverine with Scott Adsit and Chris Gethard. Listen to Wolverine, The Long Night for free on apps like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify, or visit wolverinepodcast.com for more info. Today's story is not an Arthurian legend. It's actually way, way before King Arthur. It's probably best described as being from Christian legends, though the Catholic Church declared Grail lore heresy in the 1600s. But anyway, like I said, this is far before Arthurian legends. It starts not in Britain, but in Jerusalem. And not with a knight, but a rabbi in the year 33 AD. Joseph of Arimathea walked through the room, the upper room. Just the night before, he was here with his followers, those closest to him. Joseph sighed. When he entered the city, Joseph had wondered if he should seek him out again. He had decided against it, and now the guy was dead, betrayed by one of his own followers, for silver. Joseph walked silently through the room. The followers had rented the venue, but a lot had happened in the last 24 hours. All remained, just as the group had left it. Joseph thought that it was a little weird that they all sat on the same side of the table, like they were posing for a painting or something, but ah, there it was. In the center of the long table sat a cup. It had been his cup. Reports of what he had said were already going viral among his followers. The cup had been important. Joseph shook his head. But now the man was dead. His followers weren't saying anything now. They were in hiding, their leader executed by the Romans. It was never safe to be associated with him, but somehow it was now more dangerous than ever. Slowly, Joseph took the cup. He hadn't been by the man in his last moments of life, but he could be there for him in his death. It was surprisingly easy to get an audience with the Roman prefect. Whether he was surprisingly sympathetic to the man he had just executed or simply didn't care about some Jewish revolutionary, the outcome was the same. If he was dead, Joseph could take him down from the cross. When Joseph arrived, soldiers had pierced the man's side. The Romans told him to stay back, but he held up the edict with the prefect's seal. With a shrug, the gathered soldiers turned and took down the cross. There was only one place Joseph could think of to put the body, his own place. He'd had his own tomb hewn from the rock, and though he was getting old himself and would need to find another, he had a tomb, and this man needed one. Joseph wrapped the body in linens. He glanced back at the body one last time on his way out. He snapped his fingers. Yes, 
he paid the Romans extra to guard the body and soon returned with the cup from the upper room. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. That's what the man had said at dinner, according to the witness accounts. Maybe that's why Joseph of Arimathea had taken the cup and caught the blood. He still believed in the guy and what he had said, but he was now dead, and it would take a miracle to accomplish what he had said would come true. All the noon followers had scattered to the wind, and the city was left talking about the death of the one who was supposed to be a savior. Relieved, Joseph went home. He didn't have anything to worry about. He hadn't tried to hide. He'd buried the body in his own tomb, seen the heavy rock rolled over the opening himself. Now, he sat at home, looking at the cup. What came next? A knock at the door came next, or, more accurately, a pounding. Joseph stood and demanded to know who was there. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. People didn't make demands of him. But the people at the door didn't answer. They just kept pounding. Joseph stood firm. It had been a long day. He... Just then, the door splintered him with a kick. Joseph gasped. He turned to run, but they seized him immediately, forcing a sack over his head. Two of the men grabbed his arms, and the group dragged Joseph out into the street. It was seven leagues bumping along the road, and a trip down three flights of stairs before the bag finally came off. It pulled roughly at his beard, and Joseph blinked and squinted, trying to make sense of his surroundings. But the room was so dark he couldn't make anything out. The smell wasn't exactly an improvement either. Joseph yelled back at the door, demanding to know who had taken him from his home. All he heard was a voice from the darkness. A laugh. He was no one. Joseph was no one, and this would be the last room he ever saw. Joseph was outraged, spitting back at this man that didn't he know who he was? He was a member of the Sanhedrin. People would come looking for him. The voice laughed. <laughs> Sanhedrin, huh? Well, no one was going to come looking for him. Who did Joseph think hired them for this job? The man in the shadows stood and left his fading laughter accented by squeals from the heavy iron door as it slammed shut. A few nights later, Joseph had a visitor. He awoke, shielding his eyes from the glory. Wait, he had seen this man before. He had followed this man, watched them whip and crucify him. Joseph had given the broken body his own tomb. But now the man was standing before him. He handed Joseph the cup and smiled. Minutes later, Joseph was again in the dark. He was alone, though now he had a purpose. To his relief, he'd been told he would not die in this place. God was with him, he'd heard. Moreover, he had the cup, the one from the Last Supper, the one he had used to collect Jesus' blood. It had been brought to him in prison, as Joseph sat back in the shadows, he smiled for the first time in days. It was going to be all right. He would see the other side of these prison walls. Outside, a watcher on the tower looked out into the night. He was responsible for garrisoning this tower and looking after its sole prisoner. The next day, he would go recruit some guards. Or he would have if he hadn't slipped from the tower that night and died.
the Emperor of Rome, a man by the name of Vespasian, stood outside the tower with a small personal guard and this single prisoner. This is the one, he yelled gruffly, motioning to the prisoner. A man by the name of Caiaphas nodded. It was, though he hadn't received any reports in a while, the guard simply stopped notifying him and, oh, there were no guards in the tower, no one manning the door, nothing. Well, oof, probably didn't bode well for Joseph then. The emperor promised not to execute Caiaphas by burning him alive or stabbing him, so it looked like their business was concluded. The emperor ignored the old man, pushing his way through the doors anyway. Inside was a prison beset by mold, rust, and decay. All the doors hung wide open, cells having become a home to nothing but rats, except for the last one, at the bottom of three flights of stairs. Soft mumbling trickled from the cell. Prayers. Vespasian could see that even if they had the keys, the locks had long been rusted away. He yelled on the stairway. If anyone inside could hear him, back up. In one of the corners of the room, Joseph gripped the cup, begging God that it wouldn't fall into Roman hands. Suddenly, the cup disappeared, and God told Joseph that it would be waiting for him when the time came. Several kicks later, the rusted-out iron door fell from its hinges to reveal the prisoner within, Joseph of Arimathea. They brought him, smiling, into the light, and he thanked them for rescuing him so quickly. The emperor looked at his guards, who shrugged. Joseph shared that he was impressed by the emperor's work. He would write to Tiberius himself. But Vespasian stopped him. Wait, what year did Joseph think it was? Joseph shrugged. 33 AD, he replied, even though he wouldn't remotely use AD yet. Vespasian sighed and looked at the men surrounding him. No, it wasn't 33 AD anymore. It was 76 AD. Joseph had been in prison for 43 years. What? No, how could this be? Joseph staggered, falling backwards, next to the skeleton of the man who had brought him there decades ago, the one who had fallen from the tower on the night Joseph was visited. To Joseph, it felt like just a long weekend. He thanked God for allowing him to survive for 43 years on one piece of bread. Then he gasped. His son. Joseph's son had been a youngster, just a year and a half old, when Joseph went to prison. That probably meant that he was yeah, nearly 45 years old, the emperor cut in. He circled a finger in the air. All right, let's get this guy home. Joseph took a few steps. He was so confused. This all sounded great, but also, didn't the Romans crucify Jesus? Why was the Roman emperor helping out Christians? Okay, so this story really plays fast and loose with ancient Roman history. It says Vespasian was the son of an emperor. He wasn't. He was actually a general who took the title for himself at the end of the year of the four emperors. It also said that he had leprosy, but I can't find a single source corroborating that. According to this legend, Vespasian was kept far away from anyone due to his intense stink, and news that the fictitious emperor's son had the disease spread far and wide. Word came from Jerusalem that there had once been many people cured of leprosy, only a couple decades ago. One of the men that Jesus cured in the Bible came to see the emperor's son, and Vespasian traveled down to Jerusalem to investigate. Okay, so even though this is set in the ancient world, it was written in the Middle Ages, and there was a heavy belief in things called holy relics. Basically, you had things that belonged to medieval Christian saints, 
up to and including body parts of some of those deceased saints. These items had a power. Well, following that logic, if people found a piece of Jesus' burial shroud in Jerusalem and touched it to Vespasian, and a young future emperor was healed. Learning about Jesus and Jesus' teachings of forgiveness and loving your neighbor, Vespasian decided to do the exact opposite of that and avenge the death of Jesus. Even though it was 43 years after the fact, Vespasian had anyone who had been involved with the crucifixion hunted down and either burned alive or stabbed. He almost did the same with Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest at the time of the crucifixion, and, according to the New Testament, the man who organized the plot to kill Jesus in the first place. Joseph of Arimathea's wife intervened, however, saying that she hadn't seen her husband for four decades, but, in her prayers, she was convinced that he was alive. Seeing a way out of his current predicament, Caiaphas struck a deal and told Vespasian where Joseph was. His terms? He wouldn't be stabbed or burned alive like the rest of the people involved in Jesus' death. He really should have been a little bit more specific, though, because when they returned to Jerusalem after Joseph's rescue, the emperor had Caiaphas set out on a boat in the middle of the Mediterranean to die of thirst. Okay, so remember that none of this is historical or religious in nature. It's kind of like 12th century Bible fan fiction meets bloody medieval revenge wish fulfillment with just a dash of anti-Semitism thrown in. Case in point, the historical Vespasian was never baptized when he returned to Jerusalem. And the one time the historical emperor went to Jerusalem in his lifetime was to sack it and tear down the temple stone by stone, an event which took place seven years before the supposed rescue of Joseph of Arimathea. Anyway, throughout Joseph's multi-decade imprisonment, the world had certainly changed. Three days after Jesus was crucified, Joseph's tomb was found empty, and the followers who had been denying him and hiding out were now spread to the edges of the earth, preaching. Now, it was Joseph's turn. The Jerusalem of his youth was gone. It was full of strife, and people were wary of him. What sort of man lived in the dark for 43 years, and not only didn't die, but didn't age? And so, despite his return, this wasn't his home anymore. Also, he felt a calling. He had to go north. He couldn't quite explain it, but he told his 60-plus-year-old wife and his 45-year-old son, and they agreed to go with him. They didn't want to lose him again. When people learned that Joseph and his family were leaving, and of the miracle by which Joseph had somehow managed to live for 43 years without food, he attracted a following. By the time they reached halfway to Egypt, they had 75 followers. Together, the group passed through kingdoms, preaching as they went. Eventually, they came to the place where Daniel had been thrown into the lion's den, the cave now sealed with letters, written in charcoal on the outside. As Joseph and his son, Josephus, neared, fire unsealed the cavern. Joseph followed his son, or at least, he tried to. After Josephus passed inside, an angel appeared in the doorway. With a nod, Joseph understood. This was his son's time. Inside, Josephus saw many sights, but the most important of all sat displayed on a table at the far side of the cavern. It was a cup, but more than a cup. It had been transported from Joseph of Arimathea's jail cell to this place in Old Babylon. It was a holy place, and there the cup would stay. For now. But there was more. The angel revealed a throne set with wonderful jewels, and he commanded Josephus to have a seat. After Josephus took a seat, the angel exhaled loudly. Maybe he should have led with this, but anyone who sat on that throne who wasn't worthy 
would have their eyes fly out of their head and across the room. Josephus gulped. He was really glad he didn't know that first. While Josephus sat, the angel explained each article of clothing that he was giving to the new bishop. His new hat represented confession, his new shirt purity, his new bracelet abstinence, and so on. And no, Josephus couldn't take them with him. They had to stay in the cave. The most important thing they did, however, was establish the sacrament of Holy Communion. In an act dripping with symbolism, Josephus looked at the beautiful bread that the angel handed him and wept as he had to break such a beautiful loaf. For those unfamiliar with Christian tradition, the bread represents Jesus' body, and in some traditions, it literally becomes Jesus' body after it's consecrated by a priest. Anyway, with much hand-wringing, Josephus broke the body and drank from the cup, thus completing the first communion. And so Josephus was anointed a bishop. The angel stepped forward. It was time to leave the cave. There was a message waiting for him outside. Moments later, Josephus stumbled outside into the harsh light of day and found himself looking at another group of confused soldiers. They looked at one another and then at Josephus, his parents, and their people. They couldn't believe it. There was someone here. One of the soldiers took the lead, turning to Josephus. Their king had had a dream. see what's so important about this dream and what happens to Joseph and his son but that will be right after this King Mordrain screamed he struck out with his sword and the warrior on the other horse went down however the king didn't survive unscathed the opponent's lance jutted out of his chest Mordrain gritted his teeth gripped the lance, and pulled. Three weeks ago, the king had dreamt about a man and his son who traveled from out east. Mordrain was the king of what is either France or Babylon, let's not worry about it, and his castles had come under attack by Tholomer, another king from Egypt. The man and his son, Joseph and Josephus, had arrived at Mordrain's court, berating their god, the statue of Ares had cried out against Joseph and Josephus. The statue, being a statue, and Joseph having an invisible security detail of two angels, well, Joseph casually tipped over the statue, destroying it and driving out the demon inside before commanding the court to be silent. It was then that Joseph and Josephus explained this exact scenario to Mordrain. He would go to war to help one of his besieged castles, and he would fight for three days he would then be wounded by three lances, the third lance leaving him near death. Mordrain coughed. Blood. The third lance had gone deep. He looked to his brother-in-law, Nassian, fighting not far off. He decided to gallop into the woods. Nassian was doing well, but if he came after Mordrain, they would both die. Besides, there was something else that Mordrain could do. King Mordrain remembered being curious, but... Looking at the golden eagle of Apollo and the smashed statue of Ares, it felt wrong to leave the gods of his fathers behind. Joseph said that he understood better than most, and he asked Mordrain for a shield, some red silk, a hammer, and some nails. 
a lot of awkward waiting around and hammering later, and Joseph turned around to reveal, well, nothing. It was Mordrain's shield, covered by a white sheet. Joseph explained that when Mordrain was ready to convert, when he knew that only the god of Joseph's people could save him, he was to pull away the sheet and look on the shield. Now, huddled in the forest and surrounded by the enemy, Mordrain knew that the time had come. Darkness was beginning to creep in with every heartbeat, and Mordrain coughed up more and more blood onto his armor. He gripped the top of the shield and tore away the sheet. He barely saw the red cross Joseph had hammered onto it before someone grabbed his reins. Looking on the dead after the battle, Nastian had no idea how they had done it. He had seen, out of the corner of his eye, Mordrain flee into the woods. But then he stormed out with renewed vigor. He single-handedly turned the battle and ended the war, but the king wanted no credit for it. He said it had been a white knight that grabbed his reins and fought in front of him. Seriously, didn't anyone else see that? Nastian wondered if it was the same white knight that had come to him when he was on his back, surrounded by enemies. Nassian had wished aloud for a battle axe when, absolutely no joke, the white knight broke through, said, literally, that Jesus wanted him to have this battle axe, and then disappeared again. After the white knight killed King Thalmor and ended the war, Mordrain and Nassian led their men as they bravely massacred the fleeing enemies, killed their horses, and, quote, sent heads flying with their helmets still on. With that, the famous and definitely real Egyptian assault on what is now modern-day France was finished. After the war, Mordrain didn't think twice about becoming a Christian, and he was baptized. He was actually known as Evelac up to this point, until he was given the new baptismal name of Mordrain. Nassian had been Seraphi, but now everyone knew them by their new names. Everyone in the city learned of the king's conversion, and some, either following his lead or wanting to suck up to him, quickly converted. Others were not convinced, and some went so far as to leave the city in disgust. This was, of course, a bad idea. During the war, Joseph and Josephus had been casting out demons, sending them outside of the city. With people who refused to be baptized leaving the city en masse, Josephus very reasonably did not want them to walk straight into an all-you-can-possess buffet and rush to save the people from the demons. He made it only as far as the gates of the city. With a lightning strike, an angel appeared before him, clad in black. Joseph begged the angel to move out of the way. Those people didn't know what they were going into. When the angel shook his head and refused to move, Josephus furrowed his brow. Fine, he would do it without the angel's help. Josephus had put the angel out of his mind, and he was rushing past to help the people when he heard it, and then felt it. There had been another lightning strike, and a lance appeared on the angel's hand. The bean didn't hesitate to jam it into Josephus's thigh. The tip pierced to the bone, and it broke off. Josephus screamed, shouting out again and again as the bean pulled out the lance and disappeared. Dragging himself toward the people running straight for the demons, he made it only a few feet before passing out. Hours later, Josephus woke up in bed to a... a dripping? He sat up, his father and mother looking stern. 
you shouldn't have done that. The lance tip was still in there, and the surgeon said it was inoperable. Furthermore, the bleeding was weird. At times, it was a small drip. At others, it flowed as though someone had turned on the tap. Josephus was well past the point where he should have died of blood loss, so they assumed it was God-related in some way, and he was probably out of the woods medically, just trying not to walk in any of the nice carpets. Joseph cleared his throat. He might know something that could heal his son. Mordrain had started asking about it, after chatting it up with some of Joseph's crew about their travels. He and Nassian wanted to see it. They wanted to go back east, to the cup. Joseph knew that it wouldn't be an easy ride from France to the Middle East with an actively bleeding open wound, but it would probably be easier than living the rest of his life with said wound. Josephus slowly rose from the bed and almost toppled into a faceplant on the ground. Moments later, he was able to walk with a limp. With a sigh, he agreed. He would get ready, and they would leave that night. They were going back to Babylon. This time at the cave, the angel let them all inside. Joseph and his family, Mordrain and his wife, and Nassian. The room was small and simple, and sitting on a small table next to the throne was a cup. Nassian spoke first. He had never seen anything in his life that didn't displease him in some way. Mordrain and his wife looked at their brother-in-law and brother. Oh, that was actually really sad. Nassian continued. He said he had never seen something he found agreeable until this day. This shall be called the Grail, he announced, because I find it very agreeable. Nassian lifted the white cloth covering the cup, now forever called the Grail, because the word Grail kind of sounds like the old French word for agree and the medieval writer needed to shoehorn an etymology in here. Nassian breathed deeply and took a look at it. He turned back around. Okay, I'm blind now. Why am I blind? Josephus shook his head. Nassian should not have done that. Apparently it was covered by a light white cloth for a reason. Nassian had seen what no mortal man should see. The Frenchman shrugged. Worth it. Josephus looked at the grail, the one he had hoped for healing for himself and sighed. Then, an angel holding a lance without a tip appeared, and jammed said lance into Josephus's semi-healed thigh hole. The man winced, screamed, and collapsed on the floor in pain. But the angel's attack was short-lived. When he pulled the lance from Josephus's leg, the tip came with it. Joseph ran to his son, and instinctively put a cloth on the wound to stop the bleeding. But he found he didn't need to. Even though it had bled for weeks, all the hemorrhaging finally stopped. Josephus had been healed. I mean, he'd always walk the limp and have a pretty nasty scar, but, you know, at least he could wear pants again. While the others tended to Josephus, Nassian took a moment to ask what was going on. Who screamed? Meanwhile, the angel was getting to work. The lance tip that had come out of Josephus's leg was now bleeding, and it didn't stop. The angel took the grail, collected some blood in the cup, and pressed it to Nassian's lips. Nassian apparently with a standing policy of drinking anything that gets pressed to his lips, no questions asked, even his friend's magical thigh blood, drank deeply, maybe gagged a little bit, and looked up to the angel. What did the being give him? And, hey, wait. He was looking at the angel. He could see. But the angel cut him short. This was the lance that had pierced Jesus' side on the cross, and the blood that it bled was holy. This lance was the beginning it was the start of a quest of which the story would be told for generations. Brave knights, heroic kings, and kind of sleazy wizards 
would all be part of the Grail story. A land would fall into chaos because of it. Family would turn against family, and an entire kingdom would be consumed. But there, at the end, one would find it and look on the glories inside of the Grail in an ending that can't possibly live up to 500 years of hype. These six people, standing in the cave before the angel, Mordrain and his wife, Joseph and his, Nassian and Josephus, they would be tasked with guarding the Grail until the coming of the young man who would draw the sword and sit on the siege perilous. He would be full of all the qualities that can or should be in a man's heart. He would be filled with every prowess of the world, charity and great religion, and he would be the master key of all chastity. Nassian shrugged. He could see why he was blinded. The future knight sounded like a good guy. I mean, it sounded like the angel got a little carried away with the honorifics, like what does the, quote, master key of all chastity even mean? But still, Nassian was a little less mad about being blinded by the grail. The angel continued. This lance was to be kept with the grail until the beginning of the quest. When a knight would stab its keeper, Nassian's great, 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 great grandson in the groin with it, and it would throw the land into chaos. Episode 27C for long-time listeners. On that day, in the rubble of the future castle Joseph and his line would construct, the lance would bleed. On that day, the quest would begin. Now, the six of them would go. They would leave their homes and travel to a faraway place, an island on the edge of the world. They would go to Britain. We'll wrap up the story next week with the crew traveling to the British Isles. Some willingly, some not so willingly, and some magically floating on Joseph of Arimathea's tunic. If you've always liked Shakespeare, but could never really get into reading Shakespeare, this week on Fictional, we're adapting The Tempest. A budding wizard is forced from his home to die on an island, but he manages to bring everyone who wronged him through a magical storm where they will all be forced to confront the sins of their past. Follow the link in the show notes, go to fictional.fm, or just search for Fictional wherever you get your podcasts. The creature this week is the Havko Kapko from Seminole mythology in Florida. Havko Kapko, meaning long ears, is a massive wolf with the tail of a horse and long pointed ears. It prowls around at night, living in rocky, desolate places, stalking any living thing and waiting for humans to come near. If some lost traveler ventures by in the night, long ears will watch it, pulled along by an overwhelming hunger for human affection. Seriously, it just wants someone to pet it. It doesn't understand why no one wants to pet it. Well, in part because it's some massive gray wolf stalking people in the wilderness with Dracula-like eyes that glow like hellfire. Generally not a great first impression. Also, it stinks. Really bad. Bad enough that even when you get within 100 feet, you can barely stand the odor. The thing isn't a predator at all. It only eats plants. And even when it tries to go into villages, people chase it off because it's a massively smelly wolf. They aren't without reason for chasing the creature off, however. Just under its gray fur are countless boils and open sores. Though it doesn't really feel any pain, 
It's covered in disease that will quickly kill any human that feels bad enough for old long years to pet it. It's probably torn between its hunger for a friend and sadness of watching any new friends collapse 100 feet down the road, now also covered in disease. He'll feel just awful about it, promise that it's a not-you-it's-me situation and return to its lonely, rocky home to wait for its next little wild friend to walk by. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. And don't forget to check out Wolverine, The Long Night, Marvel's first scripted podcast. It's out now, free on apps like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Or visit wolverinepodcast.com for more info. Today's episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and edited and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>